You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this The is Hour. Is You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. On the show this month, we went to Pontins in Southport for an explosion of acid, jungle, rave and hardcore at Bangface's 10th weekender. For whatever reason, Bangface has kind of got a two ways of seeing it. If you haven't been, you think it's a bit scary. And when you come, you realise it's really funny. And there's highlights from the panel we held at Tate Modern last week where Gabriel Satin explored ideas around freedom of movement in electronic music in the face of Brexit. It's going to be harder for up-and-coming artists, DJs especially, if you are having to apply for a visa. Also, if they don't know the administration process, it's, it's going to be near to impossible, I think. More on that later on. First, our adventures at Bangface. I'd never been before and I wasn't sure what to expect, but Hugh Taylor from RA is a Bangface veteran and was able to show me the ropes. The Weekender takes place inside Pontins Holiday Park, and this year's lineup included acts called Skull Vomit, DJ Scotch Egg, SpongeBob Squarewave, and Demon Cabbage. Here's a glimpse into the world of Bangface. I recently arrived in Southport at the Bankface Weekender in Pontins. Hugh from RA has been here. How long have you been here? I've been here since Thursday. Settling in well? Settling in very well, yeah. This is not your first Bankface Weekender though? It's not. I've actually lost count of the amount of times I've been to this festival. It's not every year, but it's close. Um, I was here at the first one. It's definitely the festival I've been to the most. Yeah, you've been to a lot of festivals, so this says something. Yeah, this is the one I keep on coming back to year on year. What is it about Bangface that's so special? Uh, it's many things. It's many things. First of all, the, the crowd and just like the levels of ridiculousness that people go to in their dressing up and just having a good time. I mean, every element of this festival can be kind of bleak in some ways, but it is all based around having a really great time. It's almost hedonism bordering on nihilism at points. For a festival that's known for Gabba, hardcore, these like really tough, fast sounds, the variety of music you get here is second to none. The sound is always really impressive. Um, in recent years, they've massively been stepping up their visuals game as well. You know, it's got loads of identity that just pours out and it's incredibly infectious. What are some of your highlights of previous Bangface occasions? Uh, it was the first time I saw Jeff Mills was here. That was great. Um, saw Flying Lotus playing here and doing a 3D visuals thing where everyone was given 3D glasses. Outside of music, you know, there's a lot of personal highlights. I don't know how many of them are suitable for, okay. for, for a radio transmission, but, um, you know, there's a lot of great times doing things like watching Bangface TV, which we've got on now in the background on mute, but it's an incredibly unique, stupid, and done incredibly well. That, that's kind of the vibe of the festival. Incredibly unique. It does not take itself seriously. Some of it is... I think deliberate idiocy, but done to an incredibly professional level. And would you catch me up on what's been happening since Thursday? Because it's Saturday at the moment, so how's it been going? Good, it's good. I got here around 6 or 7pm on Thursday. Saw DJ Assault play singing Arse and Titties over the bells, which was definitely a moment. I don't know if he knows how on brand that moment was for the festival, but it really really was something. Um, Friday saw a takeover from Chinstroke Records who normally have been doing Bangface TV for the past few years but they took over the Queen Vic which is a small pub venue on site and where most of the sort of even the weird stuff within all the weirdness of Bangface Weekender really goes down. And last night was great, lots of old and new jungle and eventually it all turns into about Gabba at about 5, 5 a.m. and that's when I think my personal energies can start to wane but you know it's <laughs> you'll have done a good stint if you make it to five or maybe yeah. maybe not maybe i'm thinking not very bang face that yeah that's not five five a.m is probably whipping out at bang face levels but how was the opening ceremony the opening ceremony was great there was a guy in a from from the crowd got into a homemade shonky time machine the time counted up from 101 to 808 as you might imagine lots of drum machine jokes the theme this year is um Bang to the future. Each year's had a theme normally with a bang pun in the title. I mean, is that even a pun? Bang to the future. So it's not even a rhyme. 
So yeah, it was all based on time travel, memories of the festival. Um, obviously quite a lot of Prodigy getting played this weekend, um, since it's so close to Keith Flint's passing, Godfather of Rave. We've just been watching some bang face TV in the shadow, so we've seen someone getting a drunk haircut and we've seen someone trying to DJ and they've been giving them extra piece of clothing to wear, like boxing gloves, making it super hard. Tell us about the TV. The TV has been one of my favourite things about this festival for, for quite a while. Saw a man eating a whole raw chicken one year. It was disgusting, but it was also very funny at the time. Um, I also saw him the next year eating an entire spaghetti bolognese raw onion, spaghetti, mince, it was gross. Um, okay, well we're gonna jump out of the chalet and go and explore now. I have to just say the weather has been phenomenal so far and I've only been here for about an hour. I think part of the appeal of this festival also lies in the, this frankly horrible site which is flooded from the time you get here until, until the very end. Um, it's all pretty brutal and bleak, um, which just adds to the complete headness vibe you get. Mm. Well, we're going to brave it and go explore the site and see who we can find. Okay, we've just entered what is known as the main arena. Is that right, Hugh? I wouldn't say that was a necessarily an official name, but yeah, this is where this is where basically all the rooms are, and other than the pool party and the t and the TV studio, it's all going down here. Okay, so first of all, I'm seeing like a big arcade um, with all the classic arcade games that you would ever imagine. Now we're coming to a new area, which is just before the pub, and you can have a go at making your own music in this area. Yeah, the giant, the giant 303. I think before was a giant 808, and they've revamped. We have just visited the pub, um, which is extremely loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Queen Vic, yeah, it's a pretty great spot. I mean, it's where all the most weird, as I said before, the weirdest of the weird stuff goes down there. It's often super fast, super abrasive. It's the first place to open and the last place to close. And now we're coming up to... That is the face room, rather than room one or room two, I think, normally. During our tour of the site, I got chatting to some of the Bangface ravers as I was wondering what it was in particular that draws them to the weekender. Hey, I'm Hattie. Hi, I'm Kirstie. I'm just here to have a laugh. <laughs> Everyone's proper sound. Just the silliness. I feel like anything goes. Everyone's, yeah, safe as fuck. Um, my name is Noah and uh, I'm from Sweden, Stockholm. Is this your first time at Bangface? Yes, it is. My friend here, he was here the year before. And so you've been before, what was your name? Wilmer. What made you want to come back to Bangface? Uh, all the music and uh, the artists I love. We don't get that in Sweden. My name is Lee. And how many times have you been to Bangface, Lee? This is my first. Many attempts, but I never find anyone daring enough to go with me. What music have you seen already that you've liked? I really liked Dead Man's Chest. Never heard of him before, amazing. And Remark. My name's Caroline. This is my fourth bang face. Why do you keep coming back to bang face? The first year I went, I had no idea what to expect, so I just showed up and it absolutely rocked my world. And then I never looked back. What in particular do you like about it? I don't know, I think it's just the fact that everyone is so open and nice. Like, it's nice to have nice people at a festival. Uh, my name's Simon from London. This is my third weekender. I've been going to the club night in London for maybe nine years. Yesterday I took part in a uh, pizza baking competition. Narrowly missed out on first place by half a point because it was slightly too dry, but that's because I, I rushed it in the end and forgot to put the sauce on at the end. But I made a fish and chip pizza with a mushy peas base with uh, battered cod and chips with melted cheese on top. Talk me through your outfit as well. Uh, it's a yellow tiger onesie. What are you looking forward to seeing today? Three CPAC's acid crew and uh, Bilix. It's gonna be the best. I'm looking forward to Sully. I'm looking forward to CPAC's acid crew. 
I'm looking forward to, I don't know, just having a dance. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to getting down there, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's all I'm about. What's your one tip for me for my first Bang Face Weekender? Bring loads of fancy dress and come with an open mind. Be ready to have a good time. What's the most outrageous thing you've seen today? I bought a slush puppy and then I got berry gin shot in it. Uh, but in reality, you're... Not one two pence coin has been won in those slot machines today. Uh, today I've not actually seen anything that outrageous. There was someone swimming in the lake. That's what I was going yeah. to say. You met him. Basically, um, pool party moves outdoors. Yeah. There was um, a, a nice, puddle. natural, big, flawed puddle, which people love to swim through. And yeah. I'm yeah, Proper happy crusty to see vibes. Yeah. Uh, there's been some amazing stuff on the... Bangface TV. I think it was four o'clock today. You could go to the studio and get your hair cut for free by a, a drunk person. Buckfast hair treatment. Time to find out what it's like to perform at Bangface. Hugh caught up with DJ Lara Croft's dentist. Hello, uh, I'm DJ Lara Croft's dentist, and I. Uh, performed about half an hour ago in the Queen Vic stage for the Chinstroke Takeover. If I don't mind saying so myself, it were uh, magnificent. Pure, 100% unadulterated jungleism. That's one reading of it. It did sound mostly like dentistry noises and screaming. The way that I uh, edit the amens, it might just sound like dentist drills to the hobbyist, but the true junglist them there, no, who've been there since day dot. They know what it's all about. You've been to Bang Face Weekender a number of years in the past under different pseudonyms. Yeah, I have, yeah. I, I have got to say, it's an amazing festival. I've never seen so many knobheads gathered in a small space all jumbled together. Hey, it just, it brings something out of people. I'm not quite sure what it is. I can't really put my finger on it, but it's just a jolly good time. Uh, you're performing later on in the weekend as well as the South Yorkshire McHucknell. Well, just as long as I can keep hold of my pen drive, that's the main thing because it has a tendency to go uh, wayward, let's say. As long as I can keep holding it, I'll be happy. The crowd will be happy. The organizers will be happy. Say no more. I'm Spinny, I'm a DJ and I DJed in the face room last night on Friday and then tonight me and GFOTY are doing a back-to-back -back for Wrong Music Takeover. How dystopian the environment is is amazing, like the characters really make it for me, like the mascots. There's so many different people from around the country who I don't normally get to see all at the same time and obviously sick music all weekend, <laughs> it's great. Uh, you've performed here for the past three years, right? Yeah. How do you adapt your set for a Bang Face Weekender? That's a good question. The first year that I played here, I played, uh, it was a back-to-back -back with Squire of Gothos, and that was with Chinstroke. Before I met them, they were like my music heroes, and I, like, I went up to them and I was like fangirling, so I like tried to make my back-to-back -back, like what I thought would like fit in really well with their kind of stuff, like bassline and stuff. But, I, I don't know, I guess over the past two years, like I've done, I've like traveled way more to different places. So that's probably influenced me to do more like Gabba stuff and hardcore stuff, which fits in anyway here. You can get away with just playing straight up like cheesy stuff or stuff that just goes on too long. <laughs> You've appeared on the TV a few times. Yeah. What's your relationship like with Chinstroke and the whole crew? So they basically introduced me to Bang Face because they brought us up here the first year. Yeah, to me that's always been like a really integral part of like coming here, like them doing the TV takeovers. Last year, actually, one thing that like just sent me into like a paranoid hole was watching. I woke up and on TV it was like um, Prophet Zebediah rubbing like coconut oil into his skin for like half an hour <laughs> and it was just like too much it was like really like you know the sound is like really loud and like like visceral <laughs> it was just horrible. like yeah i don't know we played on the tv last year yeah that was really fun because it was the like the ultimate house party one and they just had like a ma the massive poster of phil mitchell's heads and always like surprising stuff The TV channel is certainly one of the most interesting elements of Bang Face to me. I saw a pork pie on for an hour. 
I saw super noodle wrestling. I saw DJing with boxing gloves on and drunk haircuts. Here's the Chinstroke Records crew, whose input on the creative direction of the festival is huge. I'm Bertie. Um, I'm co-managing director of Chinstroke and Chinstroke TV Incorporated. We do things at Bang Face like providing the TV, creating a kind of hub for artists to convene and come up with new ideas. Uh, particularly praxis-driven ones. Hi, I'm DJ Deadweiler. I'm co-managing Teamstroke Records and all the sub-labels. The last few years you guys have been doing the in-house TV channel, Bangface TV as Chinstroke TV. What are some highlights from that? My favourite parts are the features that take the piss out of Bangface, generally. <laughs> because they, they, they allow us to do that, they give us the space to do that, but we, um, we have been able to have quite a lot of fun at their expense and at their financing as well, which is good to be paid by someone to take the piss out of them. Um, I'm thinking back to my personal highlights. I enjoyed your, in terms of taking the piss out of Bang Face, the breakdown of race and gender demographics at the festival. That was an amazing segment. Yeah, no, that was good. I mean, I think obviously this is a problem across all festivals, but um, I think there's the assumption that people that go to Bang Face are more liberal and more kind of perhaps like a bit more open-minded and whilst that is true in most instances the lineups are like almost entirely white and male and having the tv as a kind of platform um allowed uh, me and the team some you know we are not all white men um to to kind of raise that and to take the piss out of it basically my personal stance on it is if you can't change the whole sort of system overnight the very least you can do is take the piss out of it i suppose it's good being able to have a mixture of quite kind of complicated jokes like those ones that have kind of social commentary and then also really kind of puerile ones i think one of the most popular things this year has just been shouting alexa at a pork pie which is like a very simple joke that everyone can understand and everyone enjoys it but i don't know whether that says more about bangbase's audience or about our ability to make funny jokes that the absolute simplest one proved to be the most popular I mean, the thing that will always stick in my mind is watching someone eat a whole raw chicken live on television. Yeah, that that was completely un- that that wasn't supposed to happen at all. And I, after that happened, yeah, it was. <laughs> we were a bit worried about his health and safety. I am totally against eating raw chicken. I didn't like it, and we have a lot of uh, arguments. I'm not into eating raw chicken. I'm vegan. How would you break down your takeover of the Queen Vic this year, in particular the? Symposium segment. Uh, Symposium, I think, was important because most festivals, for Bangfest in particular, traditionally has not given any kind of platform to actual kind of interesting discussion of things. And I think most people, if they're honest, especially at a festival at the earlier part of the day when they're not all out raving, are actually like quite interested in real world things. We had someone talking about ships in the past, and that was like really popular. Actually, lots of kind of interesting facts you never knew about ships and the way like maritime fishing works and stuff like that. Um, the My favourite bit of the symposium was um, Jassy Draculich, who's a, an actual expert in plant pathology and mushrooms and mycology generally, and her talking in like, without dumbing it down to quite a sort of infantile audience, actually how like complicated and amazing mushrooms are. There's a snuggle session, uh, we provide 100 pillows. And then it was every, on the floor and everyone was uh, sleeping or chilling or deep listening to the music. It was not only ambient, it was also like drone and experimental and stuff. It's really interesting how I was in, on the back of the room at some point and I was listening to people saying, this is really weird. This is coming from a festival where people are dressing as robots and cars. And it's really nice to challenge what an, a rave should be like because the concept of rave is kind of really free. So we, when you get like these people saying this is really weird, it means like you are doing a really great job, I think. The history of the themes was... Here's James, the founder of Bangface, who started it in 2003 as a party for friends. Hugh and I asked him about the evolution of the weekender themes. It's founded around just fancy dress and the idea of like a kid literally a kid's party I kind of thought that bringing in kind of ideas from kids parties into an adult rave was a kind of good way of breaking down barriers of sort of seriousness and kind of moodiness that sort of crept into the scene a bit Um, so we kind of thought let's make it as silly as possible and with fancy dress there are themes so 
it started as a monthly club night so, and I used to just look on Wikipedia basically of something that happened on that day in history. The 2009 weekend it was actually, I think it was the moon landing or something like that, it was a space theme. It kind of went freestyle in 2010 when we reached a dinosaur theme, just so it was the anniversary that the dinosaurs were extinct on this day. From there I guess we kind of like to sort of try to, try to make each theme like a sort of popular culture sort of tribute and this one is Bang to the Future purely because it's just funny <laughs> and we've never done a future theme for the weekender. Plenty of dress-up opportunities. Tell me about some of your lineup highlights for this year. And Montobian, we've kind of, we've been trying to book him for a long time so it was, it was really great that we finally pulled it together this year. And then Little Big, Russian rave band thing, so that was, that was an amazing one to put off. I guess the other one for me is Asen that we managed to convince out of retirement uh, one of the founders of Old School Rave. There is that reputation that it is like a GABA breakcore event. Funnily enough, like we don't actually really book at GABA DJs, like proper ones. <laughs> and this is kind of a massive misconception. But the booking process, if it kind of feels like it's bang face, I'll book it. And it's, so it's kind of like sort of an emotive thing. And then like, will it kick off? Will it destroy the dance floor? You know, like Atari Teenage Riot or Napalm Death. And the, and their bookings that people, maybe people didn't connect with Bang Face, but I saw the connection because that, that kind of music is just heavily sampled in breakcore. You know, that's the way I see it. So you've mentioned some international artist bookings, but I get the impression that uh, people who are attending the festival as well come from all over the world. Have you heard stories of people travelling from far away? I've thought about this a lot because we do have people that travel from America, Canada, Australia, Japan, like literally from as far away as you can come. I think it's, it's the alternative mu music styles kind of have fan bases. You know, rather than like a kind of mainstream genre which can sort of just sort of spread with a kind of like alternative music style like breakcore or something like that, you get pockets of fan bases. It's kind of like they're connected, I guess, via the internet, file sharing, making tunes across the world. It's, it's kind of a thing with that scene. Everyone feels connected all around the world and it's only when there's an event you realise oh, I'll have to fly from Japan but before that point you don't feel like there's a, a geographical barrier it's just a scene I'd say probably three quarters of the people that come every year are kind of the so-called hard crew which is an extended family I guess for, for whatever reason Bankface has kind of got a two ways of seeing it you kind of like if you haven't been you think it's a bit scary and when you come you realise it's really funny because there's a kind of rite of passage where people get over the hump and come and then they realise, then they, they kind of feel like they found it or they're, like they're, they're in the club now. And I think that really has developed that kind of like family thing. Hello, I'm Simon from Two Bad Mice. And I'm Sean from Two Bad Mice. And um, what do you guys like about Bang Face? It's just nuts. I mean, it just reminds us of how raving kind of used to be, you know, when there was no self-consciousness about anything like that. I'm losing my voice now. Yeah, where everyone is just raving, basically, just as a vibe of how it used to be in, like, in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah, yeah, early in the original 90s. rave scene. Bang Face is, like, the closest thing, really, that, that, that feels that feels like to it. It's also really, really nice to see. Obviously, when, when we were first producing music uh, in the early 90s, uh, and, and it kind of only really had one name, didn't it? It was sort of like rave music, wasn't it? Uh, and obviously then it's mutated into hardcore, jungle, DMB, liquid, gabba, and all that. Sort of it's, it's nice to come to an event where you've got all those mutated forms of the music. It was weird because the first ever Bang Face I went to was, was when it was down in Campersands, the, the weekend that it was down there. I'd never been. I think Sean, Sean had, uh, had played at a few. And, uh, and I said, yeah, what's it? What's it like, Bang Face? And his exact words to me were, you could go on stage and play Spoons and everybody would go absolutely nuts to it. And uh, I was like, brilliant, right? That, sound, that sounds absolutely amazing. And yeah, it, it was, like I just said, you know, you've got this complete mixture of nutty styles of music that have all kind of come from them early, early days of rave. And uh, that's what makes it work. And I think James has nailed it. Yeah, I think he's totally nailed it. There's not a lot of events that can pull this off and, and for him to pull in people from places like Belgium there's people from Japan here and stuff like that 
you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a real tip of the hat to Bangface and, and, and the whole sort of like the ethics behind it and, and the whole sort of like the selection of the music and the DJs and stuff, you know. So, yeah, it's kind of the closest thing to what we were going to years ago. Yeah. And in terms of preparing your set or what you guys play when you're here, is it different to other places that you play? Bangface gives us a little bit more of a chance to express ourselves a little bit and we've been doing this recently haven't we we didn't yeah. want to be pigeonholed as just doing old school so yeah it gives us a chance to play yeah. a little bit different to what we usually play and mixing a bit of old school kind of what they expect from two bad mice yeah because it has to keep it interesting for us you know because we don't just want to be you know like a tribute act playing the same anthems week after week or something like that you know we, we both are excited about new music and so on and so forth and you know just at Bangface especially the crowd are just they're up for anything pretty so much. yeah set, set preparations pretty easy here because yeah, yeah as Sean just said they're up for anything and um, this is my first Bangface weekend up. what is your one tip what, what should I definitely do or see whilst I'm here bring a towel yeah what he said bring a towel which he didn't remind me to do this year so I so we're both borrowing his towel yeah no. um, <laughs> um, go with the flow yeah you just you've no idea where it's gonna go musically where you're gonna end up in someone's chalet or wherever you know it's just it's one of those magical mystery tours yeah try and take a piece of everything as often as you possibly can so you know some, some events you might go to you might stay in a particular area for an hour and that. I'm not one of those people that does that, especially at a place like Bangface. I will sort of move about and grab as much of people's stuff as I possibly can. Even if it's, you know, the stuff that I'm not massively, massively into. We'll go and take in a bit of mad music in, in, in the pub uh, and then we'll move on and, and, and pick up some acid and techno. Yeah, but so take in as much as you possibly can and don't just sort of like stick into one room and stuff. That's the great thing about it. It's very easy to move between the venues and, and just take in as much as you possibly can and get some sleep if you can. Back in the Boss Chalet, where the organisers were running operations from, we asked founder James about the significance of using Pontins as a setting for the weekender. I mean, the setting, the holiday park, the idea that you come and you stay and you've got like a, like a sort of mini house to stay in is a really unique thing and it separates it from a festival and it, and it allows people to sort of, I think, put more effort in, in a way because they've got a base where they can keep like costumes or like a sanctuary that they can go to and they can just like everyone's having a little house party basically um, so it's different to a festival where you're intense and it's just sort of more of a kind of survivor experience there so there's something quite unique about Pontins that it's just right for Bangface I think obviously there's a lot of humour in what you do nothing's really taking itself too seriously but at the same time like everything's done to a pretty impressive standard here like the sound the visuals taking not being serious seriously is a big part of it. Yeah, it's like a DIY ethic, but like professionally delivered, basically, you know. So that's that's always been important and that's always grown. The banners thing has just been hilarious. The idea that you, you can't really communicate when you're at a rave because it's so loud. So you find a banner that represents your mood and then that became more and more abstracted and sillier, basically. So people are just holding up total nonsense but at that time it means everything to them are there any things that have happened during the weekender that kind of sum up what Bangface is about the pool party definitely is kind of like classic Bangface, i think because it's kind of like is it an enjoyable experience <laughs> um and actually yeah it is it's, it's a lot of fun but it's kind of it it's got that kind of element of difficulty to it you know it's only like 300 people that can get in the pool loads more than that want to get in so and the weather was awful today so i think there's a theme of sort of going through a struggle to attain like a good experience so the pool party sums that up nicely I had a really good experience at my first bang face. I found everyone from the staff on site to the ravers to the artists performing to be incredibly friendly, welcoming and non-judgmental. The event doesn't try to be anything it can't be, but pours love and attention to detail into what they are able to do. So the sound is incredible. 
The visuals impressive, the site is very accessible and I have felt safe walking around, which I really appreciate. My trip to Bangface reminded me that electronic music doesn't need to be overcomplicated for me to enjoy seeing and hearing it. I'd much rather be surrounded by a community of people who really connect with the event that they're attending, like these guys did. They really ride for Bangface and it's infectious. with resident advisor. How does a creative industry reliant on international travel and cultural exchange manage in the face of Brexit and wider political trends? Mira Calix of Warp and Rosie Morris from Lobster Theremin discuss the implications with Gabriel Sutton. Today was meant to be a relevant day and it is now another irrelevant day in the process of disentangling from the European Union. Um, We don't know what's going to happen yet, but what we can say is that electronic music and avant-garde music and the entire panorama of music that is below the mainstream is inherently affected by what will happen as we leave Europe. Um, If, can I say if? There we go, there's the first if of the day, there we go. (laughs) The ecosystem that we're in relies heavily on cultural exchange as well as freedom of movement. Um, Multiple travel back and forth from the continent to the UK happens every day for different artists and that is heavily affected. I have two people to my left who can speak in the abstract and in the concrete about how these changes will affect them. If you would like to both introduce yourselves. I'm Rosie Morris. I work for a record label called Lobster Theremin and I also run club nights at a club uh, in South London called Corsica Studios. Uh, I'm Mira Calix. I'm an artist. I work with electronics. Um, So I'm in the avant-garde camp, maybe. Um, Rosie, I was going to ask you first because I imagine for the last two years and especially in the last few months there has been this pervading question of what happens next. How will it affect you pressing records, selling records, and booking artists in Europe. Can you give us a quick overview of what you're looking at if we leave Europe? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's still very much up in the air. I'd say I'll start with the record side of things. Um, I personally don't think it's going to affect us too much. Um, we, I'm sure that there will be severe delays uh, when, when getting records um, over from the from Europe to the UK, uh, it's worth mentioning that all our pressing plants are actually based in Europe, so none are in the UK. Um, but yeah, and then there'll be potential tariffs, customs. Um, yeah, I mean, it's ver- we don't know. It has been a huge worry, um, but we are still unsure. And then in terms of the booking side of things, I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult. We work quite, we work on quite short-term notices for a lot of the artists that we book. That probably won't be possible. Um, yeah, it's, it's very much still up in the air, I'd say. Mira, you mentioned when we were talking about this a few days ago that there were additional fears that you had about kind of base-level transport of materials. Could you speak to that a little bit? Um, Yeah, I was talking about in a wider context for artists, and this could be if you're a band or if you're a visual artist. So as of today, for anyone who isn't clear, because the deal hasn't passed this afternoon, we technically are out on April the 12th, um, unless there is an extension, a further extension, or something changes. Um, If we do fall out without a deal, and this is the very reason that this week... um, Van Gogh exhibition has opened at Tate Britain, um, and all those paintings came in through the Dutch diplomatic um, pouch, so to speak, because people are worried about getting things in and out. We would fall into a system where people would have to do carnets. Um, So if you're a band, you would have to do a carnet for any of your equipment or your paintings, and potentially be taxed upon those things, even when they're moving in and out. So... 
the, re the repercussions for equipment of not having a deal or not being in the customs union or the single market would start to really affect a small band. It wouldn't affect so much someone like an Adele who can maybe afford that system. But if we're talking about this genre of music, um, it could, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, it could prevent people from moving one way or another. Um, and that, that is a real concern, should we have no deal? Because without a deal, I think most people would understand here, yeah, there would be tariffs moving back and forth. I believe you worked on a certain um, enshrinement of copyright law quite recently. Yes. Firstly, could you speak about that? And secondly, are there other examples of um, steps that have been taken in the last two years since Article 50 was triggered where people on both sides of the channel have begun to identify problem areas and have begun to kind of shore up as much as they can prior to the eventuality of leaving Europe? Yes, but because there's been uncertainty, and again, it doesn't matter which side of this argument you're on, there's been uncertainty for everyone and all businesses and freelance artists or musicians. It's been very hard to plan. I'm speaking the obvious, everyone knows this. The copyright directive is something that um, evidently people can see me. I'm quite obviously a pro-European and I think this is a very positive move. Um, there's been a lot of propaganda um, against it coming from um, content providers. And the copyright directive basically means that anyone here who makes anything will have their intellectual property recompensed by the content providers. And what it actually means, if you go on YouTube, and there's an advert for before um, um, a band. Um, if you skip that advert, the band doesn't get paid. If, you, um, if that band doesn't have an advert, they don't get paid effectively. And this is a law that the European Union have brought to, to mean... Who are artists in this room? Who makes music? One, two. So it means that, but it doesn't matter if you make film or design or any creative work, you would get paid by YouTube. And that doesn't change anything for anyone else. None of you have to pay anything, but YouTube earns just a little bit less money. So that's fundamentally what it's about. But there has been a lot of misinformation about that. And personally, I think this is where um, unions work very well because they can protect uh, labor or the people. You know, we are the people, in this case, the artists. So that's my perspective on it, but that's really what has happened. If we leave the European Union, um, our organizations, PRS and BASCA, are looking to keep that so that we would still benefit from this despite leaving the European Union, but there are no guarantees of that. When it comes to the creative industries, we're not at the front of the queue for what is going to be shaken out in the, um, the eventuality of leaving Europe. Yeah. Is there a fear for both of you that no matter what we are being told or what we are being promised or the commitments that are being made for these things, it will take years and years for them to actually come into effect? Will we be basically jettisoned and left adrift for years without support? Yeah, I'm much more pragmatic. So the European Union um, have done a lot of preparation in case of no deal. So if you go to the Commission website, you can find out um, a lot. Obviously, our government also give information. Um, should we have a no deal, you would need a work permit. They have already made this clear. Um, so even if you're working for a day and if you have don't have dual citizenship, you will. So we do know a lot already because the EU have already made things clear, um, we would become a third country and therefore you will stand in a different queue, um, you will need a carne, you will need a work permit. We do know that much, um, unless one of these other options appear. I guess the other thing to say is that um, my positive thinking here uh, <laughs> is that I'm hoping that that work permit might be easier to attain than it An is. An American one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, uh, I know that UK uh, citizens, when they go to play in Canada, for instance, you can apply online. It takes less than 24 hours. It's seven Canadian dollars. I know that's just one example. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I hope that it would, we would be in a situation where they could make it as easy as that. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, 
I mean, I think one thing that's been clear in the discourse generally by our governments is that there's been a lot of talk about car parts, a hell of a lot of talk about car parts, <laughs> and the movement of goods, and very little talk about the movement of people and services. These are the part of the four freedoms. And we predominantly, or anyone working in this field, we are a service provider. Um, and we, there has not been as much attention on, on how this will affect us and these kind of regulations. So we, so we sit here with, um, it could have been a day to go or, or today or two weeks, but we, we don't have these answers. And, and that's the real um, scandal as far as I'm concerned. We, we sit here and everything we say to you is full of caveats. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter how much we've read between us or... Um, we can't tell you anything any more than anyone else, and, and that's the absurdity mm. of it. And, and that's the reason um, that actually we should all be very angry. Is there a case to be made that our industry, as you say, it's not goods and services, it's not food or medical supplies that are needed urgently in a society day to day? Is there a case to be made that our industry has a privilege and a benefit that cultural exchange can happen without? freedom of movement. This is not to say that Brexit is a good thing necessarily so much as we are not maybe quite as at risk as other industries. And could that lead to a reconfiguration of relationships of music making which are not as reliant on physical travel and physical exchange and interaction? I think if you're talking about the exchange of music online and how I can buy music from Madagascar or Senegal, then of course, in this sense, um, the world has become smaller. But I think culture ultimately relies on the freedom of movement and I think it sits in that place of freedom of ideas and freedom of movement are connected. Um, and whether that's in the makers or the people who experience it, um, so I would say no. I would say freedom of movement is the one of the four freedoms that is most important to culture in Rosie's line of work and mine. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. There was a very high-profile um, case for the festival last year called WOMAD where a number of performers had to cancel last minute. Um, during the process of putting together this talk, we consulted ideas from other people in our industry, one of whom, Shannon SP, who is part of the Hyperdub record label and runs the O Party um, at Corsica Studios, was saying that multiple artists that she works with will often have to cancel on the day that I believe Equinox, who are a kind of uh, digital dance hall act, FACA, who are a live group, these kind of people are literally turning up and getting turned away. And their prospects to bring their art and their specific perspective are getting harmed at the border. That is a worst case scenario. If the worst case scenario Brexit of no yep. deal happens, are we facing a similar environment where artists will be turned away and where 20% of bookings will not happen? Is this something that you two are both stealing yourself for? Yeah, massively. Um, I think that it's kind of already happening um, in other parts of the world and it's something that we have to tread very lightly on and um, work very... Um, you, have to, you have to know what you're doing, basically, in these processes. They can cost us lots of money, lots of time. Um, if you get it wrong, it's back to square one. Uh, it's, yeah, and this would... This would transfer to, um, I think, if we are to leave the um, EU, basically. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. And we know this from the Edinburgh Festival. I was going to bring up Boymad. They had the same problem. And these were um, artists um, coming from outside of the EU. But I think we would have the same issue with everyone would be third country. So they would be treated in the same way. So I think culture would be poorer for the loss of freedom of movement. I think it is exactly what our government is trying to do. I think it is trying to push people further and further away and not bring people together. Um, at the same time, I 100% hope that there is going to be a huge backlash. Um, I think that the protests the other week were a massive sign of that. I think if we don't Brexit, um, we won't go back to where we were because I think the last three years have created this huge division the genie has come out the bottle, so everyone's had to consider what their identity is or how they perceive themselves, if they are a citizen of the world um, or a citizen of nowhere. You know, that was a very 
mark that was the, the first Lancaster speech and it was the one that for me drew very clear lines um, so I don't think we will go backwards no matter what how this turns out and I genuinely don't know how this will turn out um, but there has been a fight back and there will be a fight back but how much that fight back will be quashed is dependent on what happens in the next two weeks it's a case that's been made with a lot of the turbulence that's happened in the last three years, in 2016. Mm. It's the same thing in America where people make the case that turbulence at the top level of, of the state and government can enable art. Mm. You've made a lot of music and yeah. have done a lot of um, artistic activity since, which has been directly looking at the consequences of Brexit and identity. Could you speak a bit about how you actually kind of tackle that as an artist and make this this abstract concept of identity and fear of changes a concrete tangible piece of music or art or work probably the best example is i, I made a, a a piece called the department of how to fuck ourselves which is about the dexeu um and it was um it was taken from a tweet by um, a really good writer called ian dunt um and was when the first white paper came out, um, another lawyer sent a message saying, great, Charlie from the Department of How to Fuck Ourselves has learned how to use shapes in Microsoft Word. And I used that as a piece for organ and orchestra in which people only played DEF, um, the Department of How to Fuck Ourselves, basically Bach helped me out. Um, and so that was a very clear protest. I mean, and I took a, something that might be considered very conservative organ and orchestra to make this really anti-Brexit um, statement. So it's very clear and not subtle in any shape or form. It's a, it's a sort of 30-minute piece that only plays these long notes where you, you are on the tip of excruciating pain and then explodes. Um, but there have been many other pieces, including... Um, a work which I did for the Tower of London, which was to do with armistice, but looking at the origins of the First World War, I started to see similarities with what's happening um, currently. I think for me, it's invaded or it has become part of my work because my life is my work and this has been a preoccupation. So if anyone has the misfortune of following me on Twitter, they know that this is pretty much all I talk about. So I used to talk about art and music and you know, whatever, but now I just really talk about Brexit. Um, and so that's where I haven't, I almost haven't had a choice. Um, it's become part of the work, yeah. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, it, it's, you're the only person really that can speak about this in that level of depth because it has kind of infused your being mm. um, justifiably. But I will say one thing, and this is really interesting. Um, culturally, if you look at history, if you look at the riots in the 1960s in Paris, if you look at Latin America, artists have always been on the forefront of protest. There's something very, very strange in that artists and musicians in particular have been incredibly quiet about Brexit incredibly, like a deafening silence from the arts. And I have to ask myself why, since we know that 98% of the creative industries voted to remain. So this has been really interesting. Normally, I can name all the artists who have been involved. That, that's how small a bundle it is, who are very vocal and who've put it in their work, Wolfgang Tillmans being a great example. So that is a very unusual, normally artists do protest, but in this, they've been quiet. I was thinking about this the other day, about how there was no tangible artistic statements made about the recession that kind of wrapped yeah. public life 10 years ago. I don't know whether this is reflective of um, our industry being so self-reliant and having such an infrastructure built up that it doesn't need to pass commentary. You mentioned you know, riots in the 60s or turbulence in Detroit yeah. or in Latin America where it's a, it's a case of life and death. We perhaps are not at the sharp end of that and so you don't need a dj that can travel the world freely with an agent that gets their visa sorted out making a comment on it when it's someone like i guess um stormzy at the brits making yeah. a comment on grenfell that's more viscerally felt yeah but part of the great you know tragedy of brexit is it was enshrined on a day and ever since then there's been rage 
on surface level, but an understanding that we can't really tear it away because there's so much fudging at the top. Yeah. And I guess it takes a particularly bold kind of artist to face the issue rather than just fudging their own their own yeah. proclamations about. I would actually dis well, not disagree necessarily, but a lot of the DJs and artists that I know and work with are incredibly political and very outspoken online and I guess it's difficult for DJs because you turn up to a club you play yes you can play tracks that like reference political speech yeah. but apart from that it's quite limited but online and in conversation they've all been very very, very vocal yeah, yeah that's great yeah, yeah. no because we don't expect everyone to sort of you know play Ode to Joy, uh, you know, as <laughs> a protest every time. You know, so, but yeah, it's, I think it's interesting because it has been, I think it's increased over the three years, but prior to the referendum, people were very quiet. Do you think the industry will begin protecting what it already has to the extent that it excludes risk-taking and might exclude a younger generation who might want to be getting into art art that may be funded by the state or maybe want to get into promoting but look at a prohibitive landscape and say actually you know what I'm, I'm going to do something else in my life. Do you think there could be a crisis of confidence that leads people who are 17, 18, 19 to forgo a career in the arts because of the overarching uncertainty we're going through? Uh, yes definitely I mean firstly like you've got education mm. cuts uh, in music and the arts I think then moving into the industry uh, it's a point that is probably much too long to kind of discuss <laughs> here, but there is a class issue as well. And I think that a lot of the, the music industry that I work in, unfortunately, is still very white middle class. And that's a huge issue for me personally. Um, and I think due to that, I think that everyone is kind of, yeah, just trying to like clutch at what they have. and. I, it doesn't look very prosperous for a 17-year-old coming into this world. I mean, you go, you maybe start working at a record shop and then you kind of move on five years later. Um, it's a slow process and it's only uh, actually, I'd say, in the last five years, the music industry, the underground electronic music industry that I work in, I think has only become an industry in the last five years, an, an industry that isn't so like underground and DIY. Um, so I think we're all still trying to work out how to make this a real thing whilst everything else political going on um, is just, yeah, I think it is quite off-putting. I, I agree. I mean, well, we know obviously music cuts. It's the, one of the biggest things at a school level. I think we're just in danger of the early people who can go to art school, go study music technology, um, have some kind of privilege that they can afford to do it. Um, unless they win a bursary, it starts to become more and more difficult. Um, this isn't Brexit related, but austerity, you know, Brussels often gets blamed for austerity. So in that sense, David Lemmy, the, the Labour politicians always made a great point, you know, blame Westminster for austerity, not Brussels. Um, and so those things become conflated because austerity has been a huge part of this conversation because we have massive inequality in this country. I'm of the belief that leaving the EU won't help that. I think it will make it worse. But I understand that other people, you know, have the opposite viewpoint. But it is a problem where just a small circle of people can afford to be artists. That's not good for anyone. That's the same idea of culture needs to be inclusive, and, but culture also needs to be open, whether it's movement or, you know, in all directions. I mean, one of the great stories of electronic music in the 21st century has been the easy jet set of taking a £30 <laughs> flight over to Berlin or Amsterdam or yeah. Warsaw and going and experiencing other cultures and having that cultural exchange. Um, the so-called hostile environment that the Tories have put this decade has subjugated a large amount of people in this country. And if it also creates a bottleneck where you're cutting people off and almost kind of trapping them on the island yeah. um, by making it expensive to be an upstart DJ and go play a small gig in Latvia, if that yeah, option is taken away, point, yeah. you stay in your lane and maybe you never develop. And in, in the same way that multiple state actions um, have 
small knock-on effects that turn into gigantic butterfly wing hurricanes, this could be one where a lot of people are shut out of those avenues that could have been available to them five years ago and just kind of stay at the second gear of their career and then flame out, yeah. which is a tragedy. I agree completely, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the other thing to, to add to that is that, again, like I think it's going to be harder for up-and-coming yeah. artists, DJs especially, um, just because like, if you are having to apply for a visa and say it is the worst case scenario mm. of 300, 400, 600 yeah. pounds, that's going to be impossible for someone that is earning maybe 100 to 300 pounds for their gigs. Um, yeah, and also if they don't have an agent as well, who and so they don't know the administration process, it's, it's going to be near to impossible, I think. Just before I give the questions over to the audience, so if you can prepare the side mic. Um, Rosie, you actually said to kind of bring it round with a counterpoint. You said that when you were in Berlin recently, the level of concern that we feel was maybe not mirrored by Europeans who feel that we're being extraordinarily clumsy as a nation and kind of self-immolating, but it may not affect the arts because the arts is DIY and can control and regulate itself even in times of hardship. Can you relay any of that information? Because it was an interesting thing to hear. Yeah, I mean, just to explain, I went to Berlin and spoke to a whole load of booking agents and people in the music industry, and everyone was quite, not positive, but not in, as, as negative as we are here in London. Um, I think they are reliant on, uh, kind of similar to where I'm kind of coming from, um, they, they, they're assured that because it's a trade still, um, we're going to be okay and we'll be able to work something around it. Um, yeah, it was quite shocking just how almost positive they were about it. Um, I'm not sure if I share that thought. I found a lot of sadness, um, and, but I've also found amazingly even getting into a taxi in Poland or Brussels or everybody talks about Brexit. I mean, if they know you're from England, they do. And um, the overwhelming response I've had, uh, people often just go, oh, Brexit, so sad, really sad. You know, so there, it's a very emotional response to something that we often, again, go, go back to these sort of numbers and economics and it's not very personal, our, dis our discourse. Um, I think pragmatism, tourists will have to travel, but, you know, ultimately people want businesses to move and people to move. I think what has been striking and where I'm more concerned is actually how much um, our government has not helped business. We are part of business, which is why none of us know what to, what to, how to forecast the next few weeks. So I think in the end, I may be relying more on the Europeans um, or uh, the other 27 countries to be kind to us and to protect us and to create some pragmatism to a problem that really is our own mess. You know, we have made this mess. Um, just to add to that as well, I think uh, another thing that was raised on numerous occasions was that um, the people in Berlin, they have a, they're very... Uh, convinced that Europe doesn't want us to leave. Yeah. And that's they sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think all, people are, yeah, sad yeah, that we They we're really, going. really don't. And I don't think it's good for them. It's not good for us. And yeah, we are. I think we're going to be fully relying on them to be nice to us and yeah. and, yeah, pragmatic, as you say. But yeah. There's maybe a certain kind of uh, hubristic, empire-minded Brit that they probably do want to keep out and probably should die for the greater national good. Yeah. But that will be a whole other talk in itself. Uh, we're out of time, so there we go. Could you all please give a round of applause to Miracalex and Rosie Morris for their time? Thanks to all our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour. And thank you for listening. We're back next month with more documentaries, interviews and discussion. Mm -hmm.